I'm Johnny McMoy, and I'll be reading from Colossians 2, 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You pray with me. Father, you have provided us the one gospel, which for those of us who today are born again, we have received, and Lord, that we can take our stand in. Father, as we look to your word today, may we truly believe that, that all of the treasures of this world and beyond are found in Christ Jesus. Will you help us, Lord, as we turn to your word now? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there's this kind of obscure Irish rock band I really like. And it's kind of a long shot. Maybe you've heard of them. They're called U2. No, 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 not, not the world's second biggest search engine where you go look at funny cat videos. You two, make sure we're all on the same page here, a rock band, not YouTube. And they, they've actually been around for a while. I'm, maybe, maybe some of y'all have heard of them. Anyway, in 1987, they released their album, Joshua Tree. And on that album was a little, little ditty, little number. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called... I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Ring any bells? I don't know. Well, since they came on the scene, U2 has actually been known um, how their Catholic faith has a, a great influence on their music. They're very outspoken about this, always have been, almost left the music industry very early on to pursue ministry. And the song that we're talking about today is no exception. It is, it is rife with religious faith, not just undertones, but overtones. Here's some of the lyrics of it, if you haven't heard of it. I believe in the kingdom come. Then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. But yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, of my shame, you know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yeah, okay, y'all do know. Look at that. How about that? Look at that. Well, until you get to those last few lines, you might think this song is actually about faith. And maybe it is. Now, I don't want to speak for the lead singer of you two, Bono. I don't even know his last name. But... He may not feel the same way he did 
when he wrote that song. He may not still feel that way today. Maybe he now has found what he was looking for back then. But at that time, in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, Bono admitted that this song was, and I quote, an anthem of doubt more than faith. Bono's own words. Now, if Bono and the rest of the band were not outspoken about being Christians, well, this would probably not be the introduction of my sermon today. But Christians writing these kind of words should at least make us pause and see what's going on here. And pause and ask the question, is it possible to have Christ and yet still not have found what we're looking for? This is something the apostles had to address very often in the early church. It's something Paul addresses here with the Colossians, as we're going to look at today. It's something Bono's been singing about since 1987. And it's something that we must consider today. Should Christians still be looking for something else, something more beyond Christ crucified, risen, and ascended, coming again to take his bride to himself? Is there something more? Or is Christ all we have and all we need? Is doubt the thing that should characterize the Christian life? Or is there, as Hebrews 6, 19 says, a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls? With these questions in mind, let's look again at today's text. In verses 1 through 3, we get our first heading. If you're taking notes, the heading is this. The struggle for steadfastness in Christ. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 again. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me ask you a question. What can motivate you to willingly struggle for something? There's all kinds of struggles in life, but what makes you willing to struggle willingly? Maybe as a parent, you're willing to struggle through sleepless nights because you see the value of your child's life and well-being. Maybe as a business owner, you're willing to struggle through long days and some lean times because you see the value of the hard work and the payoff that it will bring. Maybe as a student, you're willing to struggle through a difficult course load because you see the value in the degree that it will get you one semester closer to obtaining. Maybe as someone with a terminal illness, you're willing to struggle through treatment because you see the value in each day you have with loved ones in a fresh and new way now. I'm sure at least one thing comes to mind for each of us. What are we willing to struggle for? But I wonder, is a firm, steadfast faith in Christ one of the things that comes to our minds? Is being steadfast in Christ worth the struggle? The Apostle Paul certainly believed that it was. From an earthly perspective, 
especially a Jewish perspective, Paul had everything to lose and really nothing to gain by following Christ. In Philippians 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he wrote, He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, the strictest of all adherents. As to zeal, how hard he struggled for it, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I will not break a single of the 600 plus laws. So what would cause Paul to make such a stark shift to what he then writes in the verses following, beginning in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. If you ever read through some of Paul's memoirs that he wrote to the various churches, Paul struggled a bit for the sake of the gospel. Why would Paul gladly give up all his success as a Pharisee to suffer as an apostle? He goes on to say in verse 8 of Philippians 3, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, it wasn't that Paul wasn't striving or struggling for things as a Pharisee. Indeed, he was, Galatians 1.14 says, advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age, among his own people, so extremely zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers. Paul went from struggling for salvation as a Pharisee to struggling because of the salvation that he had received in Christ. Being blinded on the road to Damascus enabled Paul to see clearly that the struggle on behalf of Christ was the only worthy struggle this life has. Because in this struggle, the one who believes and the one who struggles gains God himself. Paul had found this to be true for himself, and it compelled him to struggle for it on behalf of others, even those like the Colossians, like the Laodiceans, and like many others that he had never met. Paul wanted them, and all he had never seen, who had seen him face to face, he wanted them to be, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 28 of Colossians, to be mature in Christ. And here, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul explains what that looks like. That their hearts may be encouraged to continue on in this gospel and that they might do so together. That the encouraged hearts of these believers and us today may be knit together in two complementary ways. First, in love, and second, to all the riches of full assurance of understanding. As Paul writes later in chapter 3 of Colossians, love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, God's love, is a love that selflessly gives 
for the good of another. And God's love has been fully revealed to us by Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. As 1 John 4, 10 through 11 reminds us, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But love as God has revealed and commanded it is also inseparably tethered to understanding and knowledge of what is true, which God has also revealed to us in his word. Love that is not grounded in the truth of God's word can easily devolve to the point that it is no longer love at all, but only a twisted and selfish gratification of our sinful desires. The world loves with a view to what it might gain. But followers of Christ are called to love out of the overflow of what we have already gained in him. In Christ we have gained, Paul says, all the riches, all the treasures of full assurance of understanding and to the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Love, our salvation is sure. We are loved with the greatest of all loves, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8 tells us. This is the mystery of God that has been revealed. It's the unknown that has been made known, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Truly, is there any greater mystery than that the infinite became an infant, than that the creator stepped into his creation, than that the source of all life died this substitutionary death, than that the king paid the debt of the treasonous. The one who is unknown to us in our sin has been made known that we might believe and find life in his name. When we have found Christ, our hearts can be encouraged that we have indeed found everything we're looking for. The search for salvation, the search for joy, the search for peace, for hope, for love, for wisdom, for knowledge, the search for all that our souls desire is over. When we have found Christ, we have found that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where else could we go, as the Apostle Peter said to Christ? Lord, you have the words of life. Paul struggled on behalf of those who had not yet heard the gospel. He struggled on behalf of the Gentile believers that he had never even met, that their faith might be steadfast in Christ. He saw the worthiness of that struggle. And by implication, if Paul was struggling for this on their behalf, how much more should they as a local body of believers be struggling on behalf of one another? Beloved, the same is true for us. So I ask you, on whose behalf are you struggling for their steadfastness in Christ? 
Unlike Paul, none of us has been directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself to be an apostle to all the Gentiles. But if you have believed in Jesus, you have been commissioned to make disciples. Whose faith in Christ are you struggling for? Surely, a steadfast faith for your spouse, for your children, is worth the struggle. Surely the Lord has given you a boss and co-workers whose faith in Christ is worth struggling for. Surely God has placed you in certain classes with certain classmates and teachers and professors whose faith is worth the struggle. Even if you are in your latter days and you're retired, there are still many whose faith you can struggle for through prayer and encouragement, even as Paul did as he wrote this letter to the Colossians from a Roman prison. And today, all of us here who are covenant members of Alberta Baptist Church, we sign the church's covenant saying that we will struggle for the unity of this church, for its well-being, that we will struggle on behalf of one another, that our hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not a matter of whether or not we struggle, but whether we struggle for what is worthy. But why is a struggle necessary in the first place? Well, we see the answer to this in verses four and five. I say this, Paul writes, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Today's second heading in this sermon is the threat to steadfastness in Christ, verses four and five. The struggle for this steadfastness in Christ is necessary. We have to consider it because the threat to this steadfastness is always near. The struggle is necessary because the threat is near. Paul has already alluded to this earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, when he writes, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We are a people, though, who are prone to wander, as the old hymn says, prone not to continue in the faith at times and prone instead to shift from the hope of the gospel that we heard. Jesus explained this in the parable of the sower. One type of person hears God's word But the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. Another hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Then there's the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The threat is real because our hearts can sometimes be inhospitable soil. 
persecution and tribulation and the cares of the world can make it hard and unwelcoming to God's word. One plausible argument, as Paul alludes to here or talks about here, causes us to believe that what we long for can be found apart from the Lord. Yes, yes, I have Christ, but purpose is really over here. Another deceives us into believing that God is holding out on us. I, I believe in Jesus, but I still don't have that relationship, that career. Shouldn't God give me those things? These arguments, these propositions, they're plausible, they're believable, they're convincing because there is truth in them. You experience a longing for something you don't have. But they delude us. They deceive us because they distort the truth with lies about where the satisfaction for those longings can be found. And the results? We believe that though we found Christ, we still haven't found what we're looking for. And as our faith grows, guess what? These threats don't go away. They just bring heavier artillery to the battle. In verse 5, Paul writes that he rejoices in the Colossians' good order, their firmness in faith. And of course, it's a great thing for our faith to be firm and in good order. One might even say that it's steadfast. And while we do outgrow some threats against this steadfastness, other more devious ones will arise. As our faith grows, the plausibility of the threats against it will also grow. They will grow to look more and more like the truth while remaining the same lies that are meant to kill and steal and destroy. One of those plausible arguments in our day right now that is particularly dangerous, especially to many in the younger generations, is something called deconstruction. Maybe you've heard about this. If you're not familiar, deconstruction claims to be a process of stripping away all cultural influences that over time have allegedly crept into the Christian faith. And on face value, this may sound kind of like a good idea, right? But here's the problem. Deconstruction, the whole idea of it, comes out of postmodern thinking, which is fundamentally atheistic and believes there is no absolute truth. So why would we as Christians look to atheistic methods and atheistic thinkers to help us refine our faith? Seems a bit like the fox being asked to guard the hen house, does it not? Many people, especially young people, are watching videos online of others' deconstruction stories, how they found their way to the real Jesus, not the way the Bible describes, but the real authentic Jesus as I experience him. And yet, as they watch these videos and go down these paths, more and more are deconstructing never to reconstruct any faith in Christ at all. No genuine faith comes out of it. That's because it's not meant to. Deconstruction's real goal is deconversion. 
to pull you away from Christ. It doesn't intend to help you reform your faith, but to reject it. Deconstruction is delusion itself, embodied. 2 Timothy 3.7 describes it well when it says, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. The enemy cannot have you eternally, Christian. He will try to keep you in a place of perpetual questioning, rendering you insecure in your own faith and thus ineffective in proclaiming Christ to others. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15 tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Likewise, threats to our steadfastness in Christ will rarely, if ever, present themselves as threats. They're not going to come up to you and say, hey, by the way, I'm here to deceive you and rob you of joy and peace and make you discontent with Christ. Doesn't happen that way. They will be plausible arguments, meaning persuasive, if not compelling you which makes them especially dangerous. Now, for those who are born again in Christ, let me be incredibly clear. The threat of deconstructing your faith, the threat of being pursuing of something else beyond Christ is not really a threat to your salvation, but to your sanctification. If you are truly Christ's, no one is able to snatch you from his hand. Your eternity is secure. But in this life, your peace can be stolen. Your joy can be killed. And your steadfastness can be destroyed. Therefore, we should be on our guard against such threats. And the best way to spot the fake, to spot the counterfeit, as law enforcement will tell you, is to intimately know the real thing. Which brings us to our final point in verses six six and seven today, abiding in the steadfastness of Christ. In these verses, Paul writes, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul is reminding the Colossians and us that the best way to spot threats to our faith and to not be deceived and deluded by them is to know Christ richly and deeply. The one who saved us in the beginning is the one who will sustain us until the end. So if we have received Jesus Christ as Lord, we ought to live like it every day. To use the language of Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is what enables us to lay aside the weight and sin that clings so closely and to run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, believing in Jesus is not just a one-time thing. Steadfastness in Christ is not simply about becoming a Christian but about each day becoming more like Christ. The gospel, it's not something that we grow out of. It's something that we continually 
grow into. Jesus told his followers in John 15, 4 to 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Steadfastness is available to us in our faith, in our souls, because and only because Jesus is himself perfectly steadfast. Indeed, Hebrews 13, 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the one who abides in him is like a man described, the man described in Psalm 1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Jesus, the true vine, roots us not merely in life-giving soil, but in the life-giver himself. He establishes us on his firm foundation. Like the wise man in Matthew 7, who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Like storms and winds, threats to our steadfastness in Christ will beat and batter us. The struggle for our faith and for others will leave us weathered. But if we abide, in the steadfastness of Christ, our sure and steady rock, then we will never fall. But abiding in Christ does require effort. Biblical scholar D.A. Carson writes this, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. If we ourselves are not constantly striving to be steadfast in Christ, then we won't be compelled to struggle so that others might be found steadfast in Christ. And we will be far more likely to be compelled by the plausible arguments that threaten our steadfastness in him. We abide in Christ by clinging to him through all our sorrows, in every victory, more than any comfort, more than all riches, knowing that no matter what comes our way, abiding in Jesus now as we await his coming, 
will be completely and utterly worth it all. We can remain steadfast in him by nourishing our souls with his word every day, by being in his presence daily in prayer, by communing with other believers, by serving others as he serves, and by proclaiming his death until he comes, which is what we have the opportunity to do here in just one moment. By coming to Christ's table, we remind our hearts that Christ's broken body and his shed blood are fully sufficient to redeem us from our sin and to reconcile us to the only God, the one who is coming again to dwell with us forever and make all things new. So, if today you still haven't found what you're looking for, and it's because you've never believed in Christ as your Savior and your Lord, come today. Come and know all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, of joy and peace, of hope and steadfastness in the God who made you to find rest in himself. And if you are a born-again believer today, but you're struggling with the thought that there's, there's something more out there you still need to fulfill you, There's something that's beyond the gospel that you have believed. Call off the search. The longing you may feel is not because something is lacking in Christ, but because you have still more to drink of his fullness, still more of him to sustain you day by day by day. Bono has often described U2's song known as Steel, as a kind of gospel song, but with a restless spirit. But St. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So today, Let our hearts sing a better song than that we still have not found what we're looking for. Let them sing an anthem declaring that we have found what we've been looking for and we want more and more and more of it. Let us sing a better song. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word, the word that became flesh and the word that has been written down steadfast through the ages. So what more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for rescue to Jesus have fled? The search can be over, not because we have found what we're looking for, but because Christ has found us and we can have our full satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Father God,
Lord, our hearts are indeed restless very often. Lord, struggling to find meaning and purpose and looking in so many wrong places. Lord, help our hearts to call off the search, knowing that you have come and found us. Our bridegroom has come to take his bride to himself, Lord. Let us abound with thanksgiving for such good news. And as we respond now, God, Lord, would you build up our hearts on the sure and firm foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen.